Hi there, I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for listening to the show, whatever you're doing today in this uh, very interesting post-COVID-19 lockdown world. Samuel Yam's on the show today. He is the co-founder of Patreon. He's also one of the head honchos at Y Combinator. It's a massive uh, kind of startup situation there in um, Mountain View in uh, Silicon Valley. Um, like many people, you know, I uh, we're in a fluctuating version of what work is right now. And thankfully, I've got two people that are able to work remotely for to help me make this show, and I'd like to keep paying them as long as I can. So that's Andy Marr, my show producer, audio producer, and um, Rachel Barrett, the, the show producer. And I'd like to pay those people because they do incredibly hard work, and without them, I can't make this show. So you might hear an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you. If you don't hear an ad, you're going to hear Samuel say something super profound, and then you'll hear a cool theme song, and I'll be back. Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, of course, I can look back and say in hindsight, oh, well, things work out, right? But that is not the takeaway that I have, especially given there was a period of about three years where I was building a lot of things, many of it alone by myself, and and nothing was working out. And so while a lot of these folks were like folks I knew directly and in person, I feel like you still get this sense that everyone is living a better life than you. What I found, without being overly cliching and saying, you know, just filter out the noise around you, is that what you should be doing is focusing on the things that you actually genuinely authentically care about. And for me, it was like looking at problems that I felt were either personal or something that I could see a path for how I could personally solve. And so then it didn't matter whether I was like hugely successful or not. I knew there was a thing I could be laser focused on trying to address it. And that in itself was quite fulfilling for me. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm sitting in uh, 
my um, just put a fresh coat of paint on the office. I've managed to move back downstairs, which is good. And I've got a baby strapped to my back. So if you hear a few chirps, it's a little wolfy on my back. Uh, thank you so much for being here. What is this show better than yesterday? It's just basically a podcast designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear today will make you go, oh, yeah. And then um, you carry on with the rest of your day. And then tonight you'll go to bed and go, yeah, today was actually better than yesterday was. That's it. Every show is the same. In that, it comes with that guarantee. Something you hear today will be something you need to hear today. That's basically it. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV and radio guy. Well, neither of those at the moment. Uh, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and uh, I've been making this podcast every Monday and Friday since 2013. So, well, I'm not really doing any TV at the moment because production shut down, but more about that in a moment. I hope you are okay wherever you are. It is an extraordinary time to be alive. I, I tell Wolfie every morning, mate, you have chosen a really interesting time to get born, mate. It's going to be real interesting. This is an unprecedented pause in the global economy. This has never, ever happened. In the history of capitalism, has the entire system hit pause? And it's really fascinating because how long it lasts, absolutely nobody knows. We're hoping that a vaccine will work, but that vaccine is probably a year away. So... Yeah, we'll be here a little while. I hope whatever you're doing, you're looking after yourself. I did want to talk to you today about happiness because I had to do the tribute thing like in Hunger Games and go out and get groceries the other day. And I did, I still did, still did see some panic buying. And I, I wanted to talk to you about panic buying. We talked the other day about buying toilet paper because, as I said to the other week, in the face of something you can't control, something so nebulous and beyond any of your ability to do anything about, you want to do something, anything that you feel you can do to fix it. And you see other people doing things and you follow suit and you buy heaps of this thing because you make it makes you feel like you're doing something. Whatever it is I'm doing, well, now I'm doing a lot and I'm trying to gain control back in my situation by buying stuff. And buying more than you need at the supermarket is a part of that. Well, there is something else, all right? For years, we have been conditioned to believe that if we want to feel better than the way we feel right now, we should go buy something, all right? Because that's what every ad says. You're not really great right now, are you? You want to make it better? This. Why don't you get one? Because we'll give you two at half price. Those people love it. They're having sex right now. You should buy one. Buy two. Buy four. Easy payments of five ninety five. Right. So every ad has conditioned us to believe that what we are right now isn't good. Buy this thing, you'll be better. That's it. That's the formula. And we've been conditioned to believe that. We even have a name for it. We call it retail therapy. Could be anything. Could be a new pair of shoes. It could be a new t-shirt. It could be a new car, a holiday, a new house. Things will be better once we move. Oh, things will be better once we move. Oh, things will be better once we move. You know, how many times has that happened to you? I certainly know someone happened in their relationship. Oh my God. Anyway, well, now we can't do that. Now we can't buy stuff because either the shops are closed or you've lost your job, which millions and millions of Australians suddenly have. What are we going to do to fill that gap? You might notice that while you're in the middle of it, buying 10 packs of pasta may make you feel slightly better. But when you get home, you put those 10 packs of pasta away, where probably on a bookshelf because you haven't got any room left in your cupboard. But you don't feel any better, do you? It doesn't make you feel lastingly happy. It doesn't make you feel lastingly safe. Because you can still get sick. You want to know what will make you feel better instead of like, Supermarket sweeping 10 packs of pasta off the shelf in your trolley? Buy two packs of pasta and give one to your neighbour. That right there 
is lasting happiness. I talked to you last week. I gave my neighbour some toilet rolls. I felt good about that for days because I knew that my neighbour who uses their bathroom eight metres from where I use my bathroom in a particularly easterly fashion, they're able to, you know, go to the toilet and not, not be worried. And I played a part in that and I helped them have a, a better day. And that made me feel so much better. That's lasting happiness. Lasting happiness is sharing. Lasting happiness is caring for another person. So try and think about how you might be able to do that. I got a text today. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been practicing what I preach. I told you on Friday, pick up the phone, call someone. I try to call someone 15 minutes every day. Just try checking with someone I haven't spoken to in a while. And I called a mate of mine. She lives around the corner from us. And sure enough, she was on the way to the grocery store today. And she texted me, go, hey, do you need any groceries? Now, I didn't, but it made me feel brilliant. It made me feel that I wasn't alone. It made me feel that, oh, there's another person that's nearby me that if we need them, they can come and help us. And compared to four weeks ago, I feel so much safer, so much less alone, so much less weird in my own suburb because I've been going out of my way to talk to my neighbours, to get to know people, to, to talk to someone on the phone for 15, 20 minutes every day. But we've got to take responsibility and we've got to do what we can to maintain the situation, okay? The day drinking can only make you feel better for so long. So once you've gotten over that, have you been exercising where you can? Have you been eating well where you can? You've been talking to the neighbours where you can. Those three things might suck, but just trust me, go and do them. It'll make things better. We are only going to get through this by acting together. And mark my words, we are going to be here for a while, okay? We're in for at least a couple of months of this. And we may as well make some good routines now and start to reshape our habits as well as the global economy begins to reshape around whatever is happening now and whatever happens on the other side of this because things aren't going to be what they used to be, okay? Tell you that now. Hopefully things will come out the other side better. That's what I'm crossing my fingers for. This week we did stop production on The Bachelor. You may have read that. It's not a small show. There's a couple of hundred people that work on it at least. Um, there's lots and lots of people that I love and adore that I've known for years are people that equally all play a, a major part in making that show that you get to see. And they're all now out of work, uh, as I'm sure many people listening to this, I'm sure many people, you know, are now out of work. And like many Australians, we are all wondering, well, what's going to happen? What are we going to do here? And also like many Australians, we're trying to figure out, well, how can we do something different in this time where we need to be a part to keep everyone safe, but we also need to come together like never before if we're going to get through this. So for now, we aren't making any TV, but as soon as we can, we will be back. But in the meantime, well, look, I'm trying to work hard on figuring out what I can do. Um, actually hoping to test something out this week. So if you are on Instagram or Twitter, keep an eye out, Twitter, uh, keep close because I might need you to click on something and jump on a video call with me uh, for a new show that I'm trying to work on. I might do it around five o'clock on Monday afternoon, Monday the 30th, that is, if you're around. Oh, speaking of Monday the 30th, uh, it's the Survivor finale tonight. Um, as you may or may not know, Jonathan LaPaglia, who's a host of Survivor, was not able to get on a plane and come to Australia because then he would not have been able to get back to America where he, he lives with his family. And I got called up to host the Survivor finale. Now, 
I'm sure there is a Disney, I don't know if there is or not, a Disney movie where there's a like a high school kid that gets a call from the coach of the New York Jets who says, come on, buddy, we need you to throw quarterback for the Super Bowl. And he goes, oh, okay. And he runs out and they win the game. That's what I felt like. I felt like the biggest fan getting the call up saying, hey, man, we need you to open the batting in the first Ashes test. You know, it was extraordinary to sit on the big chair next to the big fire pit and talk to everybody in the moment. JLP does join us via satellite, so you'll see that tonight, but it's pretty epic. So that is tonight, the Survivor finale. I'm I'm very humbled and honoured that they gave me a call and asked me to do it, and I'm grateful that I could be there for everybody that was was in the show, and I I know. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Speaking of making shows from home, let me tell you about my guest today. Samuel Yam is the president and co-founder of Patreon and the YCE of the legendary success factory that is the startup incubator, Y Combinator. He's based in San Francisco, California, and he and I were lucky to be able to talk face-to-face when he was out here in Australia recently, which was only a couple of weeks ago, but it already seems like a lifetime and even another country. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's basically a direct-to-artist funding model where podcasters, musicians, artists, authors, etc., they basically have patrons who often only contribute a couple of bucks a month each, but in return for those couple of bucks, they get exclusive content from their favorite creators. And it's a model that there's people I know that can pay their rent and put food on the table for their kids to eat all through Patreon. People that release albums only to people who who support them on Patreon for various kind of funding levels. It's a very, very interesting business model. I myself was actually able to keep this podcast afloat for a couple of years based on the generous contributions of listeners on Patreon. It is quite an uncertain time. And right now, traditional broadcast business models were already under strain, and now they are really trying to figure out how to make content in a COVID-19 economy and working conditions, which is, we're all trying real hard. But it is platforms like Patreon, which will help great music still get made and great stories still get told. I personally support a few creators on Patreon. I adore getting the exclusive content from those relationships. If you appreciate good art, good creativity, good podcasts, I urge you to give it a go. It is tight right now as far as money goes. A buck a month makes a big difference because if there's a thousand people who give a buck a month, that's huge. That's the post-production on a podcast for a month. That's big, all right? Like I mentioned, Sam was kind enough to speak to me when he was out in Australia on holiday back when you could travel and back when you could indeed go on holiday, back when you could sit face-to-face with someone. So this conversation might sound a little out of whack considering the current conditions right around the world. However, in these times when the world economy is rapidly reshaping itself, when work and home boundaries are blurring quicker and quicker, when kids going to school on their laptop is the new normal, when the meaning of work, when the definition of self and how we define ourselves, when the organisation of a workspace, when all these things are shifting every single day, it's important to look at models and business models that do work and see how we might be able to use lessons from those business models in our own lives. This conversation was recorded at the studios of the Batuta Advocate before they went into lockdown, so big thanks to Errol and Clancy for helping me do that. If you want to find Sam on Twitter, he's Sam Yam I am. S-A-M-Y-A-M-I-A-M. Sam Yam I am. Enjoy this conversation with Samuel Yam. This is great. How are you, Samuel? Great, Samuel great. or Sam? 
Sam. Yeah, Sam's Sam. perfect. Yeah, and my name actually ends up rhyming. It's uh, Sam Yam is my last name too. So high school would have been fun. Worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're uh, Pennsylvania. I don't know much about Pennsylvania. No, it's uh, that's where you grew up. Yeah, very blue collar. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, which even before my time uh, was sort of like a steel. City? I think I've heard about it in a Billy yeah. Joel song, okay, or a Bruce Springsteen song. It's yeah, like the, yeah. the the Rust Belt. That's right. You know, yeah. yeah. Now it's changed. I think it's also trying to become a, a little bit of a tech hub with like Carnegie Mellon University. But uh, that's where I grew up, and then uh, moved to California for school. What did you folks do in Pittsburgh? Uh, they opened a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant. Very common thing. Uh, my parents are first generation from Hong Kong, so. Oh, okay. So what, yeah. what time did they come over? Uh, they moved to Iowa where I was born. Yeah, just uh, in the United States uh, for, for school when they were college age. So I don't yeah. know much about Iowa except that Slipknot's from there. Okay. But I've got an idea of what it yeah. looks like. To go from Hong Kong right. to Iowa, yeah, yeah. holy moly, you were essentially like some sort of Dr. Manhattan teleportation. Like you would have been like, where are we? My my parents or my dad at least keeps telling me how he came over to the United States with like $100 in his pocket and uh, had to end up working three jobs to pay for college and whatever, which was possible at the time. Nowadays, I think folks just take out deep, deep debt for the rest of their lives. So, Yeah, <laughs> I, that's – and this, you know, it's a longer conversation, but – Certainly, oh, that's the boys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Batuta boys have just come home. Oh, they must have been out at lunch. They're almost caricatures of Australian country. Okay, bush, but I very, see. very, very intelligent. I, I like how you said, but very intelligent, as if the expectation should be that that's not the case. Well, the, 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 I yeah. think that's the that's the stereotype is that if you come from the country, then you know how to grow stuff, pull it out of the ground, and sell it, and that's it. But sure, no, sure. No, no, these guys are all very clever, very yeah, highly, yeah. highly, highly intelligent, and that that stereotype, that trope, is completely wrong. Having spent many, many, many months on the road in rural Australia, it's a it's something out of novels. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah, the idea that. A lot of the people who are making decisions in your country, in my country, yeah. certainly did grow up in a time and their paradigms are, I don't know what you're complaining about. I could afford a home and raise a family and send my eldest to school on my wage. You're clearly just not working hard enough. Yeah. Right. But here in this country, many of the people in power got their university degrees when they were paid for by the, the government for free. Yeah. And, and now similarly, not quite as bad as in the States, but the tertiary debt here is is significant and, and it doesn't kick in until you hit a certain pay grade and you might just be celebrating that you got a pay rise, but as soon as you celebrate your pay rise, they start garnering your paycheck and then you're behind where you were. It's full on. No, yeah, I think this is part of the rift that's happening now between the generations with the millennials and the talk about boomers now and how same sort of complaint that, that you mentioned is being levied where boomers are like, hey, just you know, work harder, or at least that's the sentiment oftentimes. Mm. And millennials are saying, well, because of all the systems in place, it's actually very difficult to even make, uh, forget about the American dream of owning a home, even just a standard of living that's sufficient after taking on so much student debt just doesn't seem possible anymore. I moved to America in 2005. I lived there for 10 years. Oh. And I was getting it again to a conversation with a friend of mine, Israeli mate, and we were talking about how we would just see so few Americans travel to Australia. Canadians, Brits, Swedes, Northern Europe, everyone, so few Americans. He's like, I, was, I didn't understand why. He goes, man, are you kidding me? The day they turn 18, they get letters from credit card companies, oh. all right? And then they show up into college and they, yeah. they're 19 years old throwing down 50, 60, 100 grand a year for a degree that they'll never be able to earn back. 
spending 10 grand on a trip to come down to Australia is the least of their worries. Yeah. And it's a, oh, it's a lifetime of, of being in that indebtedness. Yeah, I heard, I was talking to someone, so uh, excuse me if I get this wrong, but there's a sense that if you are unable to get a job here, Australia will sort of forgive your debts on like a student loan taken out. I don't know too much about okay. that, but yeah. they're certainly not going to put you in prison or... I see. With the United States, the way it's set up, it's the one type of debt, your student loan, that is unforgivable. So even if you go into bankruptcy, you're still going to have to find a way to pay it back oh, in the man. future. And so this is just a system set up uh, with the government on these loans. And that is... Yeah. How many uh, brothers and sisters do you have? Sammy? I have a younger sister also in San Francisco. Right. Um, yeah. She started up in finance, but then ended up... Uh, in the restaurant business and now just opens up restaurant and food. So maybe followed along my father's footsteps. I don't really so know. So what was the... Now, hang on. Let me just yeah, try yeah. and guess the name of the restaurant. Okay, so you're in... <laughs> she opens a few. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. She partners Not your with parents' first, restaurant when you oh, were a kid. Oh, my parents' restaurant. Sure. Yeah. Well, how are you going to guess that? Um, <laughs> is the word imperial in it? There's there's no imperial. It's... Ah. Uh, I think my dad... At the time, this would have been like the 90s, 2000, thought he was like very cool and hip. And so tried to come up with, with clever words. And so one of them was called like Yum Walk. The other one was like Lulu's Noodles. And, uh, you know, actually folks by Carnegie Mellon sometimes have gone to these restaurants because it's close by. It's like a very college town area. But yeah, no, no, no imperial. No oh man, because here, here in Australia, yeah. if you don't have a dragon in I your see. Chinese restaurant title or an imperial in your Chinese, <laughs> you know, or an emperor, then forget it. You're, you're not even going to play with the big boys. No, I got you. You know, there's, if you wander down here, I'm sure it's the same as when you walk around San Fran. You go like, oh, shark fin right here. <laughs> you know, right. there's a bit of that, bit of that going on. What took you to to San Francisco? Uh, school, yeah. And that's actually how I originally met Jack uh, Conti, my co-founder, who now we started Patreon. But at the time, this was in early 2000s, we were college roommates. But why Stanford? Why did you want to go there? I think I just wanted to get as far away from home initially. That was a, a big part of it. And just uh, California was beautiful. I, at the time, originally, I wasn't thinking about like entrepreneurship or tech. I started school in 2002, so it was right after, I guess, the bust um, and the crash with the tech stock market. They call it the dot-com bubble. Exactly. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And I think at that time I was, I was more interested in just seeing like what a different life might be like out there in California. Yeah. When you got to Stanford, did I mean I, I know the first time I went, yeah. I went there. I I toyed with the startup world in 2010, 2011. Like, Those were good times. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I fell in with a bunch of, uh, with a crew who have a mountain out in Utah called Summit. And I, I, oh, I, yeah. I fell in with those guys and met a bunch of people and got some ideas and people were like, yeah, we'll help you make it happen. So I went up to Sand Hill Road and I did some fundraising and things yeah. like that. But Very kind of, Silicon Valley story right Oh, there. mate, it was awesome. Yeah. But kind of right, right when I got my first kind of funding promised yeah. to me that's when it was exactly today's the day 17th of December okay. was the day that I got asked for a divorce and so that oh. significantly went on the back burner <laughs> so but I remember being in Stanford and going and I couldn't understand how how do these people how do, how do they just have access to capital it's just so simple and how do they find people so easily to work with them and then it's it's like one road, turn right, turn left. Like here's a road with all the venture capitalists on it. Turn right, there's the high school. At the end of the road the high school's on is Stanford. So if you went to that high school, everyone you grew up with, 
their dads and mums all work in this industry. And so there's this kind of instant network just from being in that space. And there's so much just, it's like a bowl of rice bubbles when you pour milk on it. It's just popping. The air is popping with idea and people wanting to connect and, and making stuff happen. When I, I'll never forget sitting in the Starbucks in Palo Alto yeah. and Teslas are flying by and <laughs> I thought, oh, we're going to do a pitch meeting at a, at, a, at a Starbucks. I was like one of eight people pitching VCs and the guy who was shepherding me around, the guy who was introducing me to people was like, see that table there? That's this guy, that guy. See that guy there? That's this person. That's from, I'll name some VC, yeah. some VC firm that I'm like, he's worth this. He invested in Dropbox on day one. Yeah. <laughs> like stuff like that. And it kind of makes sense that you'd want to be around that because that's where stuff kind of kicks off, right? I mean, I think you touched on a point on just how small Silicon Valley is. I mean, I have all kinds of ridiculous stories of people that I've run into that now like are, are very ubiquitous companies. Like, well, not only is Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, uh, like Stanford 06, which is when I graduated, but I was working across the table from him as he was building Instagram because we were in this incubator called Dogpatch Labs. And at the time, you know, he was building out Instagram with his co-founder, Mike, but what he was describing as uh, what they would ultimately build would be like a suite of applications that were around lifestyle. And so, you know, Instagram photos may be one of those pieces, but there might be other ones around calendaring or, or location. And uh, it just turns out that Instagram ended up being so big that that was the thing. And it, it's interesting because you're saying how small this world is and how you run to everyone. I think a lot of people are also just figuring out as they go along. They're trying different things and some folks strike gold and there's an element of sort of like almost serendipitous connection and luck involved in just hitting the thing that works. And that, yes, and that does happen when you are in that, I don't want to use the analogy because we're experiencing, as you would no doubt understand, being in this country these few days, extraordinary, terrifyingly frightening bushfires at the moment. Yeah. But when you're in the situation where there's just so many people ready to invest, so many people with so many ideas, so many things in this kind of pressurized environment that people are going to take a chance. People are going to throw some capital your way and try and, you know, push things forward and think something's going to ignite. And the idea that for every Instagram or for every Patreon, yeah. there are 10,000 that didn't work, maybe more <laughs> that yeah. didn't work. <laughs> I mean, the, the byproduct of this is also you see your peers that are close to you just, you know, hit off on rocket ships. And it, in some ways, drives you and, and can be motivating. And in other ways, is just terribly, not depressing, but like you, if you see that and you can't see a path for how you can build a similar thing, it just looks like it's happening to everyone around you except for you. Yeah. And that that is a sort of like heavy pressure that's, I think, maybe too much for folks. Certainly, I, I think I went through periods of time where I wasn't sure why I was like working this hard trying to figure things out when it seemed very unlikely to work out. When was the first time that happened? When was the first time you saw someone close to you just just strap onto a, a rocket and just go to the moon. There are a couple companies that I talked to or folks that I knew well before anything happened. I mentioned Instagram. That was in you know 2009, 10-ish. I knew Ben Silverman, so he founded Pinterest. Uh, met him at a WWDC conference, and then we had like Froyo a number of times afterwards. And he was showing me like the beginnings of, at that time it was a, a mobile sort of fashion app application. Mm. And eventually uh, became Pinterest, which is huge. So what, what happens? Like, do you just say, hey, Ben, we're, we're going to go and get some Froyo. And he goes, can't. I'm <laughs> on a plane to Necker Island to talk rich through his new, <laughs> you know. It's initially a slow burn, I think, for a lot of these companies. And then I think it just clicks all of a sudden yeah. at some point. 
I don't know if you use Discord, but also Jason Citrone, we used to be uh, working together in the same circles because I was in like the mobile advertising space. And so that, again, another story of like before Discord was Discord, they were building out a like a, a massively online uh, game about, uh, I think it's called like Fates Forever or something where you're competing against other people and they noticed that the most interesting part of what they had built was this actual communication channel. And now Discord is huge among mm. like the community of podcasters or, or other. Not everyone's going to be mates or know someone who's going to suddenly have a company that's valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars than it wasn't a month ago. But everyone's going to experience that FOMO and everyone's going to experience that idea of why is everyone around me you know, getting married, falling in love, having babies? Why is everyone around me able to, you know, get a house together? How come I'm not? How come I'm not? What would you say is the is the way for you? And how did you manage to deal with everyone getting the thing that you wanted but you weren't getting? It's a little bit difficult. So that's a good question because, like now, of course, I can look back and say in hindsight, oh well, things things work out, right? But actually, I, like that is not the takeaway that that I have, especially given. There was a period of about three years where I was building a lot of things, many of it alone by myself, and, and nothing was working out. And so it's interesting that you bring up this point, too, because while a lot of these folks were like folks I knew directly and in, in, in person, I feel like you still get this sense that everyone is living a better life than you now because of social media. And when you're browsing through all that and seeing like the best curated aspects of people's life, it can often make you feel like, well, what am I doing? What I found without being overly cliching and saying, you know, just filter out the noise around you is that what you should be doing is focusing on the things that you actually genuinely authentically care about. And for me, it was like looking at problems that I felt were either personal or something that I could see a path for how I could personally solve. And so then it didn't matter whether I was like hugely successful or not. I knew there was a thing I could be laser focused on trying to address it. And that in itself was quite fulfilling for me. The satisfaction that you were working on something that you truly believed would help other people. Yeah. Not just I'm chasing the thing that, oh, everyone's doing cloud storage. I should suddenly make cloud storage because that's what's hot. Exactly. I think, you know, Patreon oftentimes... Jack, my co-founder, because his story is very personal for him, where he was an artist on YouTube and he was getting hundreds of thousands, millions of views on his work. And yet the advertising paycheck would come back as like a hundred or $200. And it, it just didn't seem like value for value exchange. But similarly for me, my background, actually, this is probably why they matched us uh, in our dorm as roommates to begin with, was I grew up in my childhood was a background of like being classically trained in piano. And I actually spent a lot of my life uh, focused on that. I, I studied at uh, in Pittsburgh Carnegie Mellon University. I competed at competitions, eventually even played at uh, Carnegie Hall in New York Whoa. Uh, before, yeah, as a student before college. And when I finally did have to come up with what I wanted to do with my life, though, that never seemed like a viable path, like one where I could pursue arts as my future. I obviously like taking risk as someone working in tech and startups, but it just realistically did not seem like a, an option for me at the time. You had to be the best in the world. And nowadays, and why I think Patreon was so compelling to me at the time when we were thinking about this, you don't have to be the best in the world. You can focus on an area where there's a large community of folks that care deeply about the thing you're working on and being able to foster that community. I think you can make a living, you can make a career out of it. And so that 
hope and sort of like target seemed very real to me, even even though at the time, like we, we had not built out much of Patreon yet, but like just seeing these YouTubers trying to do it, that was exciting to me, especially given that I didn't feel like I had that option growing up. And as a musician of that caliber, and for you to, to play at Carnegie Hall, by the time you get to college, there's this kind of tipping point somewhere around 14, 15. You've got to really love it to be able to want to do it past that kind of moment of hormonal explosion and social importance when you're like 15, 16, right? So yeah. what did you love about playing classical piano? And I'm like, were you throwing down rack <laughs> mountain knobs? What were you doing? So I didn't love it originally. Uh, my parents did <laughs> sort of have to push me through it as a, as a child because I think there's a lot of patience and dedication. That's what I learned from it. And I really appreciated it afterwards, this notion of like persistence and determination, even as things are just not clicking. It's a real gift you can give to a kid to yeah. know that, yeah, your fingers are stumbling all over each other right now, but right. literally, if you do this 100 more times, it sounds like a lot now, but if you do it 100 more times, you'll be able to play this perfectly and it's six times faster than you're doing it right now. Yeah. You, there's no shortcut. You're just gonna have to do it 99 more times, kid. That's such an important lesson. Right, absolutely. So I, I'm, I feel blessed and, and very happy that my parents, at least for me, you know, insisted on it. But uh, nowadays, I mean, I just uh, appreciate music because I, I feel like, I don't know. Part of it might just be chemicals in, in uh, like what music does to us, maybe like some biological reasons. But another part is, is very much like the community of like folks that appreciate the same music and being able to talk about that and uh, folks that create music um, and just sort of understanding each other in that regard. When you were, when you were at your like elite level, I just want, I just, uh, yeah. I just want to chops now. Like what, <laughs> what, what was your peak? What was, what was your peak musical piece where you're like, I can't believe I pulled that off. Debussy was uh, a big one for me, but I actually really liked Chopin and I also just liked jazz and improv. Right, yeah. so you went down that yeah. route as well. Yeah, I played in uh, our school orchestra and so some of it was sort of lame where we would just do Christmas carols around the, the local area, but uh, also we got to do jazz sometimes and that was really fun. Do you still play? I still play, yeah. Not in any sort of either, uh, not even in like an amateur sense, like on YouTube or anything like that, but for myself, yeah. Sam, you know as well as I do, there's something about striding into a party and seeing that there's a little old stand-up <laughs> in the corner that hasn't been touched for a while. You move the house keys and phones off of the lid, you sit down, you yeah. throw down some suspended ninths and a couple of elevenths and people go, ooh, <laughs> and suddenly they look at you differently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's okay. a cool thing to have up your sleeve, man. Right, right, right. Well, and, and just even by yourself, it's uh, like yeah. very cathartic. And, yeah. Uh, just allows you to escape sometimes, which is important, I think. Uh, but it's also important that you know and you have that in your heart, what you were saying a bit before about problem solving and, and, mm -hmm. and trying to help people and the thing that you were trying to connect to when you were building up Patreon, that in your heart you knew what it was to be a musician, to be someone who performs, to see with stark reality the, the economics of it, which have shifted Impossible. I've been in the music industry oh. since I started in the music industry when I was 17 and yeah. um, as a roadie and then I played in bands and I worked in radio and music television for a long time. And then just seeing the money literally just evaporate <laughs> from the business model and the whole thing get turned upside down and that, you know, you hear Spotify... You know, I remember like at one of those summit things talking to a cat that worked at Spotify and I said, how, the, how did they sign that? deal with Amcos or whatever it is, the American one, the royalty collector. How did they do that? And then uh, uh, reading an article from Aloe Black who wrote that Avicii song, Wake Me Up yeah. When It's... A 156 million plays on, on Spotify he got. He got a check for eight grand. 
Like, you know, if they were, if this is 1981 or 1982, like everyone in the band has their own private jet and they all fly to different airports when they tour, you know, but, you know, you're still in the van, you know, it's just extraordinary how much the money's shifted. And so into this space where suddenly being a musician and even a mediocrely successful one, you could put your kids into school, you know, with a top hundred single, vanished, gone. And into this space, Waltz is you know, you and Patreon. That's pretty interesting that you came along when you did. Yeah, I think the economics are the main thing that we're focused on. It's interesting too, I think a lot of folks view Spotify as a distribution channel and so like a means to to just get larger. But you're right, like I think unless you're there at the top and it's interesting you mentioned Avicii, he at the time was there at the top, you aren't getting typically enough, right? That would be sufficient. But Yeah, our focus on Patreon absolutely is about even if you don't have the largest mass mainstream appeal, like you should still be able to do what you love as long as there's like a community of folks around you that are passionate about what you're doing too. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think when I look at Patreon, and I certainly I've used it on this podcast before. I um, I'm still up up in the air because I started working with a new podcast yeah. publisher who um, they bring client money in, and so I don't I don't feel right asking people to yeah. you know pay per month. And I think the model is is evolving too, like what it means to be a member and support uh, mm. an artist creator and be and be part of that community. I think for us initially we started off with just this concept that. Uh, people want to support you, and people did, uh, largely for many creators. And I think as the space is sort of evolving, like what is really important is what does it mean to be a member of this community, and how can like creators and artists also like give back, right, into their community in a way that's scalable, but also in a way that is I think meaningful for this audience. It's interesting. I was reading a New York Times article about what is the dynamic between like creators, uh, called influencers sometimes, and their audience. And there was this term that was coined, I think, in the 1950s called like parasocial um, relationships where it was used to describe TV personalities at the time where they could very easily establish like this intimacy mm. among a group of absolute strangers. Uh, but yet it was very one-sided. And so while you felt close to these big personalities and whatnot, there actually wasn't a relationship that was sort of two-way. And I think now... 
because of, uh, you know, the internet and, and just enabling everyone to sort of have a democratic voice. There are ways that audiences today can sort of provide feedback and input back and uh, what they care about to a creator, to a, a podcaster, to whoever. And in some sense, work is a lot more organic and collaborative these days. And so, you know, I think we sort of fit in that bubble too, somewhere in that puzzle. So. It sits to me as the kind of an exploded version of the fan club model that started when music started in that if you wrote in and you became a member of a fan club to a band, you would pay a certain amount of money each year and you would get the Christmas single that's only... I mean, the Beatles did it, you know. uh, You only got this 45 record if you were in this fan club and they sent out a newsletter every month and with photos that only you would see and it's kind of exclusive stuff and but that's you know it's very intensive stuff you know and it's hard for a band to individually write to 10,000 people every year but what strikes me most wonderfully about and it's interesting two things you mentioned that the parasocial thing I've never heard that before but I was talking with my friend Rich the other day about I know I'm doing my job right on TV, I noticed at first, I would hear people call my name across the street and I was like, oh, that person must know me because they've used a tone of voice that only people who know me use. Yeah. And we'd start talking. I'd be like, oh, we've never actually met. Right. Oh, oh, just because I've spoken about so many personal things on at the time it was a music television show and they were referring to things that I'd spoken about. Yeah. I was like, oh, right, right, right. You think I'm your friend. Well, yeah. They feel like you've met, you know? Yeah, because well, like, I'm from in their, their house side. every exactly. day. I'm yeah. in their house for three hours every day playing Absolutely. music videos, right? So yeah. as far as I'm concerned, I'm, you know, there. And now as a podcaster, I'm with them every Monday on the way to and from work, right? And we, uh, we drive together wherever they are yeah. or take the train or bus or wherever. And so there's a familiarity and, and indeed an intimacy that, that you describe. And... What I like about what you do, and you mentioned it a few times, it wouldn't be successful if it was just give money to this person that makes a particular kind of art that you like and that's it. It's no, no, no. You are buying almost a membership into a community and inside this community you can see other people and it appeals to that kind of tribal nature that we as humans do and as the thing that's made us successful is by getting into tribes. And that that seems to be what has ticked off and it seems to have clicked as yeah. to why the Patreon thing works. I like to point to a story that uh, happened this year to sort of illustrate a lot of that. There's um, a YouTuber named Simone Gertz and she makes this channel called Shitty Robots and <laughs> uh, it's it's very, uh, very cool stuff. Yeah. But she had a uh, remission of the tumor in her brain this year and so I think she was going through some very difficult times and uh, she made a, a pretty heartfelt video that In this struggle that she was dealing with, the two constants in her life were her mother and her her patrons of communities that was supporting her. And despite all the uncertainty, it was great having that stability with that community with her that that she could always have that positive support with. And so uh, I think there are ways that even if you're not directly interacting one-on-one with your audience, that you feel that love and support in that sense too. And I think people that are are watching and listening to channels uh, also sort of recognize that. And so, yeah, I think that's pretty powerful. And this is just going to be the future. Like, 
children today are also, I think, very early on getting locked into this notion of watching and, and being part of a community. I think there was a survey that was run uh, this year to celebrate the 50th anniversary of man landing on the moon. And uh, it asked children, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? Because it used to be like all kids want to be astronauts. And the, uh, the number one answer, at least in the U.S. and the U.K., was a YouTuber. That's what kids want to be now when they grow up. That's who they're looking up to by like a three to one ratio compared to like an astronaut. So at this point, I think it's just in our mentality that we want to be part of a community and like understanding and talking and relating to people, which is good. That's what to me defines humanity anyway, right? Like being in relationship to other folks. And we just got to figure out how we can do it with technology in a way that's healthy. When we started getting televisions, we started to isolate ourselves. We started to no longer go around to each other's houses and, and visit of an evening. We started to, this is in the fifties, right? Yeah. We started to get more and more solo and then uh, you could live alone and still feel like you were in a conversation. Whereas previously, if you lived alone, it was a pretty tough life. But with a television, you could at least feel that you're connected in a strange way. And yet, and it seems now that we are fracturing ourselves even more and more. So even now when we're out in public, at least back then, if you were living alone, when you went out in public, you still had to bump into people and look at people and be around. But now I'm sure as you've seen, as you travel the world, you walk down the street, if there's a hundred people going in two different directions, 80 of them are looking down at right. advice, you know, that we can be alone in a crowd of thousands, which yeah. is super, super strange. So as we move towards this, as, as you mentioned, as we move forward and we get more into these devices and these devices come out, our totems, if you will, that they're around us all the time, how do you see us being connected? How do you see us having authentic connections with people? The, the dark irony there is that people are staring at their phones because they long for that connection <laughs> and that human relationship and so they're just browsing through instagram and liking and causing these little dopamine yeah hits. yeah and and just uh, very ethereal interactions that that don't uh, mean that much but i think that's what you know folks are trying to figure out it's really interesting even here in australia i think facebook or something tests a lot of the early uh, hypotheses they have in this market because if you look at Instagram or uh, at least for Instagram for sure when I looked at it they don't show you the like count anymore which I think is a good step forward so that people are not chasing these sort of ultimately meaningless validations for themselves I think what defines a meaningful human connection is the thing that hopefully we as, as a people figure out and also uh, can find a way to use technology to figure out. Because I think technology ultimately can be very helpful. Like I don't want uh, folks fearing that in any way, right? It's just that Silicon Valley in terms of its motivations up until this point, like having been there now since like early 2000s, was very much around, if you look at what the incentive structures look like, it was trying to build the biggest, most impactful thing ever. Because then when you're in that position, you can maybe fulfill more of your mission and do more good. And so because of that, if you look at all these social services, their mandate was to build engagement and usage, and those were the metrics. And so when you look at something like Newsfeed. I think actually a lot of tech companies, their motivations come from like a good place. Like they want to do something useful. And so the story about like how Facebook Newsfeed came about from the former head of product, uh, Chris Cox, was that they were looking at the behavior of what users were doing on Facebook and they were just going through everyone's profile page and looking for what 
you know, changes and updates were happening. And so Facebook was like, well, let's make that way easier by putting all those updates in a single feed. And initially people were on uproads about how this invades my privacy. I don't want everyone to know when my relationship status has changed. And now you're just surfacing all that, even though it was public information before anyway. But I think the folks at the time building that thought they were being more helpful. And now today it's become that because there is this feed, the only thing that matters is that you curate your life in a manner that shows that you're living your best life. And I think that's also a huge burden for every single individual. And so going way back to your question on like, how do we make sure that the relationships become healthy and important going forward? I think we have to sort of break out of this mentality of like, what's the strongest level of engagement and the the way we can almost addict people into using these services and step back and talk about what are the interactions that are actually meaningful, even if there's not a lot of them that are actually healthy and fulfilling for humans. I don't know. <laughs> no, I do. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's look because you're at the coalface. You're you're among you're among the the people that code this stuff and, and write this stuff. And as you know, one of the arguments of Roger McNamee, who was a um, advisor to Zuckerberg and Elevation Partners, is you his Bono's guy, and yeah, he yeah. got he got Sandberg hired, and then he got out and has now just come back going. Hey, 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 hey! I'm not. I'm still a shareholder, and because I'm a shareholder, I'm going to put my hand up and say this is really terrible. We all need to, you know. He's it's a an interesting book called you know Zucked. It's a fascinating read. Okay. One of his arguments is that the very DNA of a lot of these products are written by usually men of yeah. a particular social class, of a particular racial profile, of a particular emotional spectrum, and so when it comes to coding what picture should I show this person first or, you know, how long should I wait before I show them this, how many times they got liked or not, that decision that they are making is not overseen by anyone. It's just like, I'm here in this moment, I'm going to write this line of code, oh, yeah, boom, and they hit enter. And that tiny little decision made at that level inside the deep, deep, deep squillions of lines of code ends up shaping behavior of someone in Mumbai. You know, yeah, and, yeah. And as someone who has been shoulder to shoulder with a, a lot of the people that build these things, what would you say to that? Are we indeed just living out the whims of coders' decisions that they made on a ramen and Red Bull bender? I do think uh, the mentality from within is that folks are trying to be objective about things. They're just optimizing almost generically in their minds, maybe good metrics. Uh, I mentioned one of them was like engagement, but now we actually see how that's unhealthy if you're addicted to a device. I will also say that this issue that you're bringing up is going to be really important to wrestle through before we get into stuff like AI. Because similarly, we're seeing things now where it's like AI is just its own machine. It's going to figure out it's it's objective in its own way. But the the way that it is set up oftentimes, and even the prompts that it's given, it ends up producing very biased outputs oftentimes. I think there were, I'm not gonna get the studies right, but I I know that there were a few like sort of image studies where AI were supposed to identify certain things and it came out being almost racist basically by the end of it. But it's just replicating what it was built with, which it carries the biases of the people that built it. That's right, yeah. Or if not the direct biases, the like overlooking of situations because they were not familiar with that in their own lives, right? Yeah. And so, being within Silicon Valley, I certainly feel a sense of like shifting tides where there is a heavy push. And I think that's certainly true for Patreon too, of like diversity and inclusion and not just 
within the, the companies and, and the folks working on these issues, but also making sure that they're sort of evaluating the constituents that represent the people that use the platform and service. Like for us, we want to make sure that as we're growing out the business, it's not just one segment of users with like a very uh, homogenous background or, or whatever else. And so it's something I think folks work on, but of course, because of the history of everything that's been built out, like I, I, there's going to be a long road. Is there an onus on companies that have such extraordinary global influence? Uh, and I'm mostly yeah. talking about Facebook products, sure. particularly Instagram and, and Facebook, not so much WhatsApp. But is there an onus upon companies like that to take the people who are building the nuts and bolts of it out of San Francisco and put them in Mumbai, put them in Thailand, put them in Ho Chi Minh City and say, okay, you're going to write the code, but you're going to write it living here so that you get an idea of the global impact that this global product has you know you get you get more of a scope of you know you talked earlier about problems and solutions ultimately the problems and solutions mostly by stanford graduates who've grown up in a particular way yet in a bubble in california being used by you know someone in vladivostok someone in in non pen you know is there an onus on massive globally influential companies to start fragmenting their their core building teams and and because you know you mentioned discord you can now work anywhere you want in the world at any yeah. time zone is there an onus on them to kind of start putting people in different parts of the world so i think as a company gets really big this is actually exactly what they do because they want to figure out localization and so they set up offices in different places and on top of actually working out of there as they're building i think they also you know they have the finances to do a lot more user research across Mm. the globe i think the unfortunate thing is that when someone begins because like the story of many of these companies are just like originally you know many many decades ago it's just out of a garage nowadays it's probably out of like a co-working space or something Mm. but it still is you don't necessarily have the luxury to get that. It's, first of all, not that many people. Maybe it's like one or two people working on the initial kernel of an idea. And then secondly, at least in Silicon Valley, all the funding is sort of uh, very condensed in just one area. And the funding also comes from people of like similar backgrounds that you mentioned earlier, right? And so the beginning of many of these companies do not come from that place of uh, like a diverse set of mentalities. And, you know, I think across the board, in these different industries, uh, that is also being evaluated. Like, can we get more uh, women and different backgrounds in investing, right? Mm. Because that's gonna influence the type of companies that come out of Silicon Valley too. But I don't think this is solved. Certainly what I see today is that a lot of companies talk about accountability and they publish their numbers around like internal diversity and the initiatives going on. But then what's happened over the years is there oftentimes hasn't been that much progress made against these numbers, even though they're being published very transparently. So a lot of the pressure is coming from within companies, like people that work there saying, hey, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. It hasn't yet come to the place where I think like legislation has had to step in and say, hey, companies, because of your outsized influence, you have to do it this way or that way. Mm. But you know, given the election and the turmoil of some of the you know discourse out there, that may come in the future. It's interesting that this is an industry that seems to be immune from legislation and immune from regulation. Whereas if we, you yeah. and I were to launch a pharmaceutical, if you and I were to launch sure. a new building material, if you and I were to launch a new way of, I don't know, transmitting electricity from one place to another, we would be regulations up the wazoo. We would have to fight every step of the way to try and get this because public safety is at stake. Yet, I would argue that public safety is at stake with these kind of products and these kind of things, yet they all but 
through what is it called a Dutch sandwich? They orbit in these weird kind of companies like that. No, 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 no. We don't actually work here. Sure, my office is here, Correct. but we're, we are beholden to the laws of an island that is 300 miles off the coast of Africa, which is where our tax threshold is, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and it's and, and so it all becomes too hard and, and then these they can innovate so quickly is the piece of code that you may be taking them to court over no longer exists in 12 months by the time you get in front sure. of a judge. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not even just like issues around uh, users and their happiness. It's around issues of like how these platforms can be used to elect officials. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. And so, right. I even heard something. I was, uh, I think I was on a, a car ride on the radio and uh, one of the politicians was talking about, Hey, the standards on television when you run an ad is that you can't put out falsehoods that are like known. And yet on these platforms, they don't have those safeguards in place yet. And so you're advertising, reaching out to a much larger audience that like can get lost in their own echo chamber of what they believe and just reinforcing like absolute lies. And there's not yet legislation around this because I think, you know, governments are still trying to figure it out. Like, and I do agree. I think at some point there will have to be right. But uh, it's just how fast the world's able to move. Why, well, I guess, you know, then you get the why, if you're in power, why would you want to dismantle the thing that got you there? Yeah. And if you're in opposition, yeah, yeah. why would you want to pull apart the thing that might get you there too? That That's fair. <laughs> I do think internally, again, like a lot of intent is good, but there's a lot of like clashing incentives. Like while you want to do the right things, if you're a business leader in, in a certain area of Facebook, you also can't just crush your revenues because then it would look like you're doing a terrible job. Mm. And so there's these constant things that folks are wrestling with, I think. Yeah. But they're not they're not evil people, right, within a company. But Well yeah. and this is the thing. Yeah. I mean it's a Silicon Valley's a beautiful place. It's yeah. it's glorious, it's blue skies, and it's you know, there's no internal combustion engines, everything's in electric, sure. and people are on scooters and it's lovely. Um, <laughs> I don't know about the scooters, but well, I don't know if that's lovely. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially around Venice, man. You've got to put speed limiters on those birds, man, seriously. Yeah. I was there with my family. I moved out from Venice a couple of years back before the scooters came back. And we nearly got taken out. Like, my wife's pregnant. I'm like, come on, oh, man. Oh, no. Yeah. Come on, dude. I know you've got a vape pen in your hand. With one hand, you're <laughs> sucking CBD in one hand. Is that how Americans are perceived? That's probably about right. Uh, yeah. the, yeah. the guy's probably a school unit. Right, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> he's like one-handed on the back of a bird going to his weed dealer, vaping weed oil uh, <laughs> and doing 20 miles an hour on a sidewalk <laughs> down at Kinney. He's like, come on, pal. You live in the dream, I'm sure, but throw a bit of care and consideration our way. When you look at uh, what you built so far with Patreon, and I know you know when you're done, and I know you yeah. know, you're never done, and it's always going to build and evolve. And I mean, goodness, what? It's over half a billion dollars that people have given in 2019, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That's extraordinary. All right, that's that's a nation's economy. Yeah. All right, there's a lot of artists that are putting food in their fridge and feeding their children. Yeah. It's humongous. Thank you. Obviously, we're, we're happy about that. And as you said, too, obviously, we feel like there's actually a much larger market of well, folks. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. You know, do you, you know, when you, when you look at the problems that before you launched, when you yeah. looked at the problems that you thought, this is going to be humongous, yeah. I'm really frightened about this happening. Were those problems as big once you launched it? <laughs> there were. There are all kinds of problems. When we I'm, I'm talking about the kind of problems that made you you just kind of go, maybe, I don't know if this is a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, I mean, here's the example of, of what happened when we launched. So we were both highly convicted that this was 
a need in the world and also would be like readily accepted by the community, at least of creators. And so Jack had a, a list, I think almost of like a hundred uh, different artists and creators that he was like, okay, as soon as we get this built, they're going to love this. They're going to uh, be able to finally make a living and, and get the value for value for what they do. And so I went off, I designed and built out the platform. And then Jack went and emailed, called, whatever, contacted every single person on that list. And at the end of it, everyone had said no. Hmm. They said they didn't want to launch with us. They, they weren't interested in the platform, weren't sure that it made sense for them. And so we were looking at this thing that we had built out and on launch day, we had to go because we, we set this all out. It was Jack launching uh, on his YouTube channel, his now wife, uh, who is also a musician, Natalie, and then their roommates in their home uh, who were also musicians. So it was, it was just three people on our front page and we're like, let's just go with it. I already built all this out. And when Jack went on YouTube and asked his fans to help support him on this endeavor, they came and within you know a few days he was making several thousand uh, per song that he's released. And I think once people saw that and it, it clicked, right? But certainly I think a lot of problems that you feel exist and do, I would say, aren't necessarily recognized by the folks around you. And so today I, I still feel like we're dealing with the same struggle. Like there are a lot of artists, and I think this makes sense. They don't want to ask their fans for money. You sort of describe the same issue with yourself. And so what I think we ultimately want to build out is a, a way for it to feel more like you're offering a community like access to things that you care deeply about and giving them a way to not necessarily collaborate directly with your work, but just be part of that journey. And what that ends up looking like is that you have conversations with these folks and they end up getting even more engaged and activated and they become sort of like on fire for the, the type of work you're doing and then start spreading out and growing the community. So in reality, what you're doing and building out a membership is actually getting folks that already care about you even more excited and more engaged. And so we want to build out tools that allow you to do that. And we're not there yet, I would say, as a platform, but that's what we believe will be a truly healthy and thriving community for artists and creators. Do you find yourself exploring how various communities around the world interact and what works and what doesn't work and then trying to figure out how to reverse engineer that back into uh, maybe a feature of the platform that, yeah, I don't know. You, yeah. you can say like, oh, so if there's Dunbar's number, okay, so there's 140 sure, people that yeah. we can have meaningful connections with. Like, right. do you like for example, would you go, okay, so you can have a top tier super contributor, super contributor, but we're going to limit that at 140. Like, just 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 throw it out there. Right, right, because the community can't start yeah, keeping track and, of who's in it after that. Yes, that level. And they don't. They yeah. don't feel special. Actually, a really interesting idea. I, I would love to see people experiment with that. We Can certainly do lots. Of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> lots of data studies ourselves and figuring out like what is both on a pricing level and sort of like what sort of things to offer. I do love even what you described, like evaluating situations from almost like a psychological level of like what would be useful and what would be meaningful for folks. Interactions that you notice in like China. China has this uh, like I think several billion uh, dollar company called YY that is effectively live streaming and you can get paid get quite paid quite a lot of money because people throw money at the person live streaming, usually singing songs in the form of these like emojis or like unique icons. And they get probably like a dopamine hit too, because there's a whole community that when they see something like that, they're excited that the artist is getting paid and something is going on. But in China, the culture is just much more deeply uh, ingrained with like karaoke and, and singing. And so that's why that's what people do there. In the US, of course, there's Twitch, right? So gaming makes a lot of sense for this. But I actually think what has been happening a lot has been the emergence of podcasts that 
end up being very intimate for people and end up forming like a very real connection with folks in all kinds of segments, including a, a very massive one around like true crime lately. We see like crime junkies and massive, these folks. Dude. Yeah, it's people massive. love being part of that community and getting involved in, in whatever way. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would certainly say culturally, like you see very different things and we're evaluating that and it may be different situations in different areas, yeah. It's interesting that you can alter and change your product for different markets and that you know, and certainly in the way that in a more westernized country that there's a real sense of, of self over state yeah. versus in a country like China where it's like state over self and, and that's a, almost a paternal relationship with uh, like say for example in Thailand with the king and things like that. You know, yeah, It's a yeah. very, very different way of looking at who you are in the community versus somewhere like here or you know any kind of Judeo-Christian-y kind of, you yeah. know, it's like, it's me and then everybody else. Yeah. I also think it's dictated a little bit by the type of platforms that exist. So, mm. for example, Instagram, everyone's carrying their life, whatever, and that's all you see around. There's been a few articles in the New York Times about, like, TikTok and how it's it's actually a little bit different. And on the surface level, maybe it looks like the same thing. People are just sharing snippets of their life. But the way memes sort of travel through there, the article in New York Times was basically saying it's actually been quite healthy for children in schools because it ends up being very collaborative instead of like letting them focus on bullying. And so as a new song or dance or whatever meme comes out, people start doing the same things and, and finding each other uh, within their schools and, and trying to do these together. And at least, you know, early on, there are some aspects of it that may actually be healthy. Certainly, I think there are many yeah. addictive aspects and also bad things uh, with all these social media platforms that are being figured out. My, my but, kid was into it back. My kid was into yeah. it. When, she, when, it was yeah. when it was musically, she was all over it. Musically, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, she, lo- she loves it, man. Yeah, yeah. She, she lo- but I am creeped out by that Snapchat feature that shows where they are at all times. Oh. That's pretty weird. Yeah, actually. That you would put that on a I product see. used by preteen kids yeah yeah, yeah. i've seen a, a few of the lo- location things but uh, it's pretty weird yeah, that stuff. yeah it's a bit weird for me oh, I, I think i know what you're talking about yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and that it's like on a map and then you can yeah actually yeah, see. Can yeah, see, yeah particularly if say if one of them lives and it is in the case yeah. if you were to live in a neighborhood where you go to school and you're like a primary school or yeah, a yeah. Proper senior school and you'll basically walk to school the algorithm sees that you're maybe only a couple hundred feet apart because your house is two blocks this way your house is two blocks that way from the school yeah. the algorithm sees it and goes oh you're in the same place and says oh blah 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 are hanging out it's like right. well they're not yeah. but now all your community thinks and that's kind of strange you know that kind of thing is, is a bit weird for me no, I've got to be honest Sam <laughs> I think a like the, there's some privacy controls that companies yeah. are are working through and uh, getting through, and then b there's like sort of an education for people who are using it too. Like, what is the thing that I should be doing, and what thing is like not safe, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think uh, your posts on Instagram all have locations, so people can actually like form out a heat map and see where you live almost if yeah. you're posting a lot of things from there. And you may not know that that's what people can do, right, with mm-hmm. your data, and so. Yeah, I think there's there's just work across the board. Yeah, for this stuff. When it comes to Patreon and and I love the name of it because it, it really does. When it, when you think of the greatest art that we yeah. know as the greatest music that we know, the greatest art that we know, it was all paid for by patrons. Yeah, it was, there's no shadow of that. You walk through any gallery, that painting is only there because some wealthy person said, "I want a painting for my wall," and there it was. And we only hear this famous piece of music or this famous. Figures like, oh, my daughter's getting married. I want you to write the most extraordinary mass. And hence these beautiful masses were written by these incredible composers and they're still performed today, hundreds and hundreds of years later. So it's a bloody great name, man. Uh, But it really does tie into that idea that great art 
really does take time. It's a job. It takes work. And the economics of it don't kind of work out. And that you've able, you're kind of tied into that human want and need to support an artist to create something that gives you this, ah, I look at that and I feel great. Or I hear that and I feel great. Where do you see the role of Patreon moving forward? Or do you see it moving forward in a way where so much of our our way that we view the world is altered through the newsfeed that you described earlier, through TV channels that are in the business of keeping you watching and so keep triggering your fear instincts and only ever show you bad stuff. Where do you see Patreon's role in maybe forming a common reality, I guess? Because at the moment, if we use enough internet products to find our news sources, we can live in a completely different reality to a person that we sit next to on a bus. You know, as far as they're concerned, the country's fine. As far as I'm concerned, my country's on fire. But all I've seen and all they've seen back up exactly what we that what we believe that, yeah that was what I was talking about with like the echo chambers that you mm. can get when you get really deep into like your own sub community mm. and your genre do you see Patreon having a role in maybe creating a different narrative maybe through podcasting or maybe through journalism yeah that's interesting I, I certainly think we care deeply about having uh, healthy communities and so that that's why I use the example of like Simone Gertz also uh, another really great creator that I like is uh, Humans of New York um, Extraordinary. This guy, Brandon yeah. Satin just sharing these stories of individuals and I think just going off on a quick tangent like what that really builds is like empathy towards other humans there was a yeah another story that from Humans of New York that I, I really loved this photo of a guy and he mentioned how he used to bully a woman in high school who had anxiety and uh, uh, he kept telling her, I, I just love this story, that th- there's nothing. Like, why Why do you have so much anxiety? And then recently, as uh, an adult, he called her up to say sorry because uh, his father passed away and he started feeling his own anxiety. And the last sort of line there was like, he understood now that uh, anxiety was not nothing. It was actually the indescribable fear of nothing. Like, you don't know what's going on. You just are constantly in, in worry. And so I think other people hearing these stories and building out empathies towards like the human plight around them uh, is all quite healthy. So then it still goes into the issue that there are some creators because they want to get big or they care about specific issues that then just inform a certain way and then they rile up their community a certain way and people then in that community get further down that funnel and that can get unhealthy. And so your question of whether we have a role in this I think in general, we don't want to be an arbiter of what is art, what is speech that might be more progressive that we don't feel comfortable with yet or or anything like that. But what we do care about and what we can use as a rule is that we don't promote sort of like harassment across communities or this is an interesting one because we run into issues with this, but even hate speech, we actually feel like that is uh, bullying across other groups or individuals. And that is what we believe is unhealthy today. And, you know, I'm sure sure we'll we'll have evolving viewpoints and, and get better and smarter with this throughout but today like we have no tolerance policies on, on specific behaviors that we find very damaging like doxing exposing people's addresses because it's a new world right you expose someone's address that you're having issues with you have a large community behind you and maybe someone there does threaten them or do something bad and so maybe that technically isn't illegal right anywhere to talk about people's addresses but given the environment and what others might be capable of i think that certainly creates a culture of fear for the victim and you know we we try to be a little bit advanced in understanding the nuance of how online communities today work and having a healthy community mate it's not rocket science as someone who works in radio and works in television there as as you alluded to before 
there are that many regulations that I have to train and pass a course in before I'm allowed on camera or before I'm allowed on a microphone yeah. to have a complete understanding of this is the legality of our, of our country and this is what you can and can't say. I can't go on television and say, blah, 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 who lives at 98, blah, blah, street, oh, blah, blah. That's good, yeah. That's illegal for me to do, okay. all right? But on the internet, yeah. it's so it's not like you are yeah. you are not breaching some sort of you know yeah. setting some gigantic you know Game of Thrones wall of ice between no no sure, you're just yeah. doing what the community standard is the community standard is like we decided that you're not going to broadcast someone's address over the television and the radio right. this doesn't seem to be too much further from us deal with it and I think that's fine man because yeah. we as a community decided years ago probably not a good idea to do that and that's okay. fine you yeah. know and, and I think that's totally okay you're at the coalface man you're in the thick of it you hear things around you know what people are building you're an angel list people are pitching you every goddamn day um, what we'll go backwards so we can yeah. you know, so we can we can end with the sun rising what kind of makes you a little worried as you look worried. forward yeah what do you worry okay. about as you look forward I mentioned AI. I think uh, one of the things, it's also interesting hearing how Australia handles it with the government and folks that uh, maybe don't have jobs, like how the government helps support them. But one of the things I think folks are, are wrestling with, we're about even see it even some of the US presidential candidates today, is like, what if we get so, not what if, when we get so good uh, with technology and AI and computing that a lot of these repetitive task jobs go away and are just done better by machines and computers, what do those people do? And in some sense, that's great. I think people certainly find a lot of peace and it's very cathartic to do many occupations, even if it is repetitive tasks and that's great. But like there are other options for that too, like meditation on your own free time and uh, ways to be healthy. But if those jobs are able to be done more effectively by a machine, then hopefully that should just give more free time for people to do things that either uh, they love immediately or that connect them to other humans or that are ultimately just healthier. And uh, I don't know what that path looks like right now. The thing I believe in is actually where I think Patreon is well positioned. If more and more things that are typically considered like repetitive tasks are done by machines for jobs, then the real things that people care about are like human to human connections through, yeah, like art and, and creative work or like things that make you feel healthier or inspirational or connect you to a community. And ultimately, I think that could be very healthy. Yeah. So that's, I, I, I agree with you because yeah. Yuval Noah Harari talks about this a lot. It's like, what do you yeah. suddenly do with not only an entire group of people in a developed country yeah. that have no use now, what do you do with, I don't know, say, for example, the garment makers of Bangladesh when we start to onshore yeah. uh, garment construction again? Like, well, what do they do? Well, they're in a country that's like, yeah. oh, bad luck. You know, what happens? And it's interesting you bring up Yohan Hari because he actually, it sounds like we're going backwards in some sense when he was talking about how the most common number is zero for the people that, uh, in terms of like friends or people that they can talk to about their issues with like mental health and depression. Yeah. And it should hopefully grow, right, yeah. over time. Like it needs to. And I, I think as machines become more efficient and are able to solve jobs, what that ultimately means is companies are probably making a lot more money. They're being more effective. And so like, how does that get back to people so that they can have like a, a meaningfully good standard of living? I think that's going to have to be wrestled with. 
Yeah. And today I think it's self-enforced companies are saying Google and Facebook are talking about how they're buying out housing and trying to give it to people. But I, I think it's going to have to come from a bit more than just like policing by just hopefully like goodwill dictators at, mm-hmm. at companies, right? Yeah. Like we're going to need a set of standards to make it so that people do have that, that important, meaningful quality of life. What then excites you, man? Like yeah. my, my little boy, he's 16 and a half weeks old. What excites you? About the world, right? Yeah. I think we are talking about these issues in a way that we're not denying them anymore. So as I mentioned, you know, Facebook, even if it's a little step in removing likes, I trust that humanity will get there, right? I, that Sometimes that's difficult, like seeing all the things in the world, like to even have faith that humans will figure out how to, to be healthy and get there. But I do think ultimately, like... <laughs> People care about each other and they care that as they see the numbers going up and depression going up and their children not being happy or God forbid people committing suicide, they're going to realize that that we need to solve this together and, and that we're taking those steps. And I anticipate that technology can really help us and that ultimately we'll figure out what that looks like. And I, again, I think that involves just healthy, meaningful human connections over time. Sam, I know you're a very busy man and you're on the other side of the world and you spend an hour with me. I'm bloody grateful, man. <laughs> no, really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. brother. That was really good. All right, thank you. That was Samuel Yam. If you did like what you heard there, you can definitely let him know. He's on Twitter, Sam Yam I am, S-A-M-Y-A-M-I-A-M. Big thanks to Ed Hooper, who lined that chat up for me. Uh, Ed is a total legend, big entrepreneur guy here in Australia, big in the early big in the pod, podcasting space, and um, a, a cracking human being. So thanks, Ed. Thanks heaps for lining that up. Big thank you to Andy Ma, who helped me make this show. Rachel Barrett, who made Sam and I in the get in the same room at the same time, which was absolutely ace. Um, how Ben Spania for all the uh, social support. Errol and Clancy from the Batuta Advocate and, and Sanon and, and all the team there for helping me um, record this show in their studio and uh, indeed be in their studio so the, the whole time when Wolfie was being born and, and um, we're rebuilding this house and as soon as the Batuta studios are open again I hope to join them back again but at this point and for the time being it looks like them like everybody is in, is in lockdown I hope you are okay if you need me at all you can always email me send us your email at gmail.com it's great to hear from you whenever you do email take are you going to say anything Wolf you right back there buddy he's just on my back I've got, I've got him in backpack mode on the and it's, it's pretty ace because I've been I painted a wall with my baby on my backpack and it, it's been great. He's really good. Um and he's been great. I got to wake up next to him on my birthday. It's my birthday today. It's um I'm a double Jordan, 46. Um so yeah, Audrey made me a beautiful coffee this morning and uh then she made me gluten-free vegan banana pancakes which were out of control good. Anyway, Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks for listening. I might throw a few more podcasts up considering this is my only job for a while. So, yeah, watch this space. If you're around about 5 o'clock today, uh, keep an eye on Instagram and Twitter because I might throw a link up and and get you to help me out there. Um, If not, I'll see you tonight, 7.30 for the Survivor finale. Um, Okay, I'll talk to you on Friday. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 